Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast in the Surviving Hard Times podcast. I have uh, Kareen Irby. She's the founder of Broken Ground Permaculture. Uh, if you go on YouTube, it's Broken Ground. And uh, she also has a website, broken, sorry, brokengroundpermaculture.com. Uh, she's a garden design consultant and an educator. And for over 10 years, she's helped people in cold climates grow their own food so they can eat healthier and live more sustainably and be more self-reliant. Um, she's got a great YouTube channel with a lot of videos and thousands of people watching. So I wanted to talk to her. So, Kareen, thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. If you would, tell me about, about your background. Like, How did you become a permaculturist and get into this area? Yeah, so I uh, did. I studied environmental science uh, at university, uh, but then kind of took a bit of a turn and went into human rights and social justice work and spent a lot of time uh, in Latin America. 
uh, and became kind of an activist and worked for a nonprofit organization doing uh, activist work, social justice work in Latin America, but quickly became burned out uh, and started looking for solutions. So I've always been someone um, who's been concerned about uh, the environment, about ecological crises, about what we can do better. And I think I spent a lot of time as an activist being against someone or something and was looking for more positive solutions. And that's when I found permaculture and found that people who are involved in growing their own food are contributing to a positive ecological footprint, if we can put it that way. Uh, and just it's, it's one of the most positive solutions to the current climate crisis, for example, one of the growing your own food is a, a reconnection to the natural world. Uh, and I just really found my people in that work. So what does your work look like today? It sounds like you do some consulting and educating. What's a, a typical day or a month for you? What kind of activities? Yeah, so it, it varies just based on the seasons. But uh, a typical day, so I work with clients through education, consultation and design. So I oftentimes do workshops where I'm educating people on gardening 101 or on permaculture. I also consult with clients one-on-one -on -one and go to their houses, their homes, troubleshoot with them in their gardens or tell them where to put what and why. And I also actually do edible garden designs for clients if they want the full-on you know, service of a full-scale homestead design of both fruit trees, maybe bare bushes, annual gardens. Maybe they want chickens. Maybe they want rabbits. Maybe they want goats, depending on, on what their goals and interests are. So I do all of those things while at the same time I run my own homestead. So I have large annual gardens. I have a food forest of fruit trees and berry bushes, and we have chickens and a pond and a greenhouse. So all of those things take a certain amount of time, depending on the season. So in the early spring, I'm in my garden a lot. Um, in the late fall for harvest time, I'm also doing a lot of preserving. But then in the winter, I get some time off from the garden and I'm able to work on my business in terms of what I need to do, what programs I'm going to offer the following year. So it's very dependent on the seasons. And I love that varied way of working as well. So what are some of the common needs that people have with their, let's say, their property? They want to do some kind of a homesteading or growing. You know, what are some of the I don't know, major flavors of need that people have that you help them with? Yeah. So one of the, the major things, obviously, people come to me because they want to grow more of their own food. You know, whether that's just a backyard garden that they can have their children involved in or whether that's like full-blown self-reliance. The other thing that people come to me for is that they want to get rid of their grass. And so, you know, here in, I'm based out of Montana, so we're in the West, and, you know, we still have the suburbs that where people want to have these green lawns, yet we don't have the, the rainfall for that. And so people don't want to waste their water just growing a lawn. They'd rather get something out of that. So whether that's food or whether that's a pollinator garden or that's some kind of beautiful landscape, those are some of the main reasons that people come to me. They either don't want to be watering a lawn and they want to turn that into food or habitat, wildlife habitat, 
or they're also really working towards some kind of level of self-reliance or at least having some kind of garden so that they can they can grow some of their own food and have that on the dinner table you know just doing that whole garden to table and have that as an experience well so if someone wants to dip their toe in they've never gardened before let's say they're concerned about upcoming food problems Mm -hmm. what are like some basic things that they can do just to again dip their toe in without going crazy or you know having a brown thumb and killing everything Right. Yeah, exactly. So one of the major things that I tell my clients is to start small. I think that we have become so disconnected from our food systems. Like, I don't know about you, Richard, but my grandmother was an avid gardener. Um, My mom was as well, but we didn't, that tradition of passing along that knowledge um, was interrupted, I think, by this large scale food system that we have now. And so for a lot of people getting back to the basics of growing food seems like a, a fairly intimidating task. And not only that, but it does take a certain amount of your time. So what I usually recommend for people just starting out or dipping their toe in is to start with a very small garden plot. So usually like a four by eight raised bed or something that's manageable so that they understand all of the all of what is involved in terms of watering and maintenance and care. And then if they do want to go bigger than that, I always say you can grow into your garden, right? So the next year, maybe you have another raised bed or the next year you put in some fruit trees or some berry bushes. So I definitely recommend you don't change your landscape all at once, just like natural systems, being patient with it and also doing it over three to five years in terms of what what your capabilities are, the time that it takes. And as you grow into your garden and you gain more experience and you you gain more skills in that arena. So starting small is my number one recommendation and start with stuff that you want that you eat on a daily basis. So you have a little more skin in the game. So if you really like green beans or you really like tomatoes or basil or lettuce, start with things that you not only like to eat, but that might be easier to grow. Um, So when people grow, I mean, do they do it outside? Do they do it in a greenhouse hydroponically inside their house? Like, What are some of the trade-offs you've seen and the actions people take? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it depends on your climate always, just in terms of what you want to do. Greenhouse growing is somewhat more challenging, but if you are in a cold climate, it's definitely going to gain you a season extension. In other words, you can put things in the ground a lot sooner than you can outside. Outdoor growing is less is more forgiving. Um, just in terms of you are dealing with the native soil on your site, you're probably you know adding amendments and compost and all of that to make the soil better in terms of growing. But you have the whole kind of natural ecosystem of the outdoor garden to kind of help you along the way. So indoor growing is possible. Of course, it's more kind of energy intensive. So I always recommend to people to you might as well, if you have the climate for it and the interest in it, you might as well start with growing outside because you have the natural sunlight helping you. Um, it's not as energy intensive and you can and you can grow a lot more and you have more space. But if you only have an indoor option, then there's certainly tons of things that you can grow indoors in pots to get uh, started and to get familiar with um, with the whole process of, you know, taking a seed and putting it in the soil and seeing it become something that ends up on your plate. 
Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Well, what are the additional inputs that you need for uh, growing indoors versus out in the sun? Yeah, so I think indoors, you're looking at possibly getting grow lights. So special lights, oftentimes now they have LED ones, so they are less energy intensive. So that is certainly a possibility. So grow lights and then a potting soil mix that has a certain amount of nutrients in it. The difference that you have with growing in pots indoors versus outdoors is that every year you're going to have to add nutrients to that soil in the pot because there's only so much nutrient that that plant can draw on because it's a limited amount of volume that you have whereas outdoors you know you have a lot more volume that 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 that, can, that plant can draw on so that's one of the things that in an indoor context you'd probably likely be getting new potting soil or what are called amendments you know fertilizers every year to help with the growing process. Uh, whereas outside, you do have to add that fertility every year, but it's not as intensive a process. Well, well do you have to add it? Or, I mean, I've heard of regenerative agriculture. How much right. uh, can you reduce the inputs, let's say, in an outdoor grow, and, and how would you do it? Yeah, so you definitely, you know, one of the, one of the main principles in permaculture is, you know, basically creating as closed a loop system as possible. So in terms of fertility and inputs, a lot of that fertility might come from animals if you have them on site where you can use their manure, like chicken manure, or if you have rabbits, or if you have goats, any of that kind of stuff that can contribute to your fertility and or growing plants that are nitrogen fixers. So those are things often that people hear like clover is a nitrogen fixer or beans or peas are nitrogen fixers. So they are drawing nitrogen out of the atmosphere and they're making it, converting it into a readily available plant nutrient in the soil. So there are lots of different strategies that you can use on your site um, where you are year after year having, bringing in less and less inputs from outside of your space, for example. So that's definitely a possibility. Your listeners might be familiar with worm composting, for example. It's also known as vermiculture. So using red wiggler worms to break down your food waste, and then they in turn create these vermicastings, which are also another soil amendment. So definitely lots of different strategies in terms of soil building, in terms of soil regeneration, and in addition to that, things like compost teas, which basically introduce more soil microorganisms 
into into your landscape and those are those soil microorganisms are what make the nutrients available to the plants well okay. if you if you make your own compost i mean is that enough for you to feed your own farm like what what is the uh, what are some of the ballpark numbers on like how much compost you need for how many let's say square feet of growing space outside yeah, I mean that I don't have that number offhand and in a, like a lot of things in agriculture it kind of depends on your site and what you're starting with. But typically your typical home scale compost pile is not going to be adequate for a say 500 square foot garden, right? And that's where compost teas help extend the the breadth of your compost, but you may also, you know, have to bring in additional compost and or if you do have animals in your system, then that's the way to, to bridge that gap. So it all depends on kind of the scale of your site. You know, if you have a suburban site where you can have a lot of animals, then you might be looking at constantly bringing in inputs of, of compost. But if you have a large farm scale operation with animal systems on it, it's very likely that you'd be able to create and generate enough fertility on your site where you're not having to bring in additional inputs. I mean, one thing that people want to think about too is in a say urban or suburban context, you know, you're maybe closing the loop on a community wide level. You might not be able to do it on your site just because of the scale of your site, but looking at, you know, there are all sorts of initiatives now in different cities around residential composting services, for example. So, you know, companies that pick up compost from residents around the whole city, they take all of those kitchen scraps, convert it into, and they have like a large scale operation, and they convert that into compost that they either sell back to the residents and or give back to the residents. So in that sense, you know, designing at a community sales scale in terms of producing no waste is also a way of thinking about how you're you're designing your site, especially if you're in an urban or suburban context. Well, what are some of the uh, plants or vegetables that are easiest to grow for people outside for the first time? Yeah, great question. So things like radishes, lettuce, peas, zucchini beans, all of those, kale, Swiss chard, all of those are fairly easy plants to grow. When you get into more of your warm season crops like tomatoes and peppers and eggplant, some of those can be a little bit more finicky or need a little bit more of your attention. But those basics are, you know, I'd say start with the basics and then, you know, you can move on the following few years as you gain more experience with some of the more, some of the plants that take a little bit more of your care. Um, what about for indoor growing? What kind of hydroponic systems do you recommend? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm less familiar with hydroponics. I mean, usually with a lot of hydroponic systems, you are still growing kind of leafy greens type stuff um, because it takes less, it's less intensive. So I'd say... I don't I don't know as much about the hydroponics and, and what's easier or harder, but I would say that things that are leafy, one, take less nutrient and less input and less time. So usually people starting out probably in the hydroponics field would go with with things like that. 
Well, with the uh, different hydroponic methods, I mean, um, do you recommend ever doing soil inside a greenhouse or hydroponics inside a greenhouse or inside the house or what, what medium? Yeah, I always recommend soil. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of soil. I know hydroponic systems, um, in a sense, in an urban environment make a lot of sense in terms of resources, but there's nothing, uh, that beats hands in the soil. Uh, and I think that ultimately, you know, that's how, we started out <laughs> as, you know, agricultural, you know, as, as humans in, in agriculture is with soil. And there's just, you know, soil is incredibly forgiving on the one hand, and it's, it's a natural system, whether, whereas in a hydroponic system, you're always having to add inputs into that system. In a soil situation, you can over time set up a system where you need less and less inputs over time and you have the natural system doing the work for you. So it's always about, you know, what what I love about the work that I do is a, it's an invitation for people to reconnect to the natural world and to natural systems. And, you know, there's a saying that if you take one step towards nature, she takes 10 steps towards you. And it's really understanding those natural systems, ushering them along and um, seeing the abundance that comes from that. And so when you work with existing natural systems, it's a lot easier than if you're looking at, say, a hydroponic system that takes a certain amount of tech and plastic and uh, nutrient inputs, which I don't get me wrong, I think there's a place for hydroponics, but it's a little bit more intensive in terms of inputs and in terms of the gardener themselves having to be a part of it. Um, so for indoors, you still recommend soil and it's doable inside a house, inside a greenhouse, soil will work just fine or no? Yeah, I mean, definitely in a greenhouse, that would be the way to go, like in my opinion. Um, I'm sure a lot of other people might might say otherwise. Um, in terms of indoors, you know, you do have a limited, I think it depends on your space. So a lot of things in gardening are always it depends you know it's kind of like how much space do you have how much time do you have what um what's your setup in terms of like do you have a south-facing window you know where where is your location what climate are you in and so all of those kind of factor into the best design for you and that's how i work with my clients you know is just you know what are your goals you know how much do you want to grow what is your circumstance in terms of your yard, your sun and shade? What's the climate? All of those things factor into the best kind of growing strategy for your site. But yes, I am still very partial to soil if you can if you can do it and manage it. Well, what are some crops that people want to grow, but you don't advise it, let's say, until they're way advanced or maybe not at all? Right. Yeah. Again, that's it can be climate dependent. You know, if you have a greenhouse, you you have a lot more that you can grow. But for example, trying to grow ginger or sweet potatoes in a cold climate is going to be a really challenging proposition, even if you have a greenhouse. There are certainly certain types of greenhouses that make that possible. You know, I work with a guy, Jerome Ozentowski, with the Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute, who has tropical, who has a tropical greenhouse at 7,200 feet in Basalt, Colorado, right? Using a, a greenhouse design called a climate battery. So things like that are possible. It gets back to, you know, people's budget and abilities. Things like melons uh, in a cold climate, those are harder 
because you don't have as long a growing season. You know, melons and sometimes winter squash can be challenging. But, you know, it's all dependent on how much time and energy to people want to dedicate to growing and, and you know, how much how much they want that, you know, if they really want that melon, then they might uh, spend a little bit more time. But some things, you know, in the subtropics, sweet potatoes grow like weeds, right? So, but things, you know, people in cold climates, you know, how can I grow a lime or a lemon tree? Well, that's going to be harder to do and you will definitely need a greenhouse. It's possible, but I think constantly there is a, a, a saying in permaculture forcing function, you know, where the input in, does that, is that worth the yield that you get out? And that's constantly something that you want to weigh as a gardener is, is the input of time, energy, or money that I put into this system worth the yield that I get out? And what I mean by that too is do, you know, is building a massive climate battery greenhouse that might cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth the lime or the lemon tree that I get out? It could be could be depending on what the goals are for your site and for yourself. And you always have to have to weigh that. Um, it's also one of those things where in a cold climate, if we're at fairly high latitude, during the winter months from December through February, we get very little light. So is it worth trying to run a greenhouse during that time? Because the 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 vegetables, right, or the the greens, the spinach, the lettuce, whatever you have growing needs extra heat and it needs extra light. And so is that input of energy worth the yield that you get out? Or is that head of lettuce costing you 10 to 15 bucks for that head of lettuce? You know, is that is that really worth it? So you're constantly making those types of decisions based on on where you're at. Do you or anyone uh, cultivate mycorrhizae, you know, the fungal hyphae that, uh, you know, will augment a plant's ability to grow in soil? Do you add it? Do you cultivate it? Do you know anyone that does? Yeah, so that's definitely, I mean, by virtue of, you know, I add a lot of additional wood chip to my property. So in my food forest, which is mostly fruit trees and berry bushes and perennial flowers and herbs, I will add wood chip from a local arborist who, you know, prunes a bunch of trees in town and dumps a bunch of wood chip on my site, I will add that to the food forest. And there is naturally mycorrhizal fungi in that wood chip. So that just kind of comes in regardless of what I do. I don't need to necessarily inoculate that wood chip because it's just kind of a natural part of the of the system. So if you are if you are building a perennial system, in other words, plants that come back year after year, you are naturally marching that ecosystem towards a fungally dominated soil, as opposed to an annual system uh, where that's more of a bacterially dominated soil. So mycorrhizal fungi are inherently in, in soil. And the more you feed that soil, grow that soil, add organic matter to that soil, the more you will be growing um, that network. And it's not to say that you can't also inoculate that soil with beneficial fungi as well. And so you're, again, understanding that natural system, you may want to go to like a forest um, nearby uh, in your ecosystem 
get like a couple tablespoons of that soil, you know, be very respectful not to take too much and um, not to impact that natural ecosystem as much, but get, you know, a few tablespoonfuls of that soil and bring it into and inoculate your soil with those organisms. So that how much how much does inoculating help? Does it really is it easy to do and you know does it make a big difference that you observe? Yeah, I think I mean it's hard to know everything that's going on, right? There's still so much mystery to the soil food web. Uh, there's definitely a lot of there's a lot of studies that have gone on. I know your podcast also focuses on gut microbiome. And um, so so there's a lot of the soil food web. There are a lot of unknowns still. And so how beneficial is it? We know that it's beneficial uh, to, to inoculate soil, if you, especially if you're trying to grow any kind of food, um, to inoculate it with fungi. Um, what What we don't, you know, some of the stuff we just don't know, right, in terms of you know, how quickly it grows um, and to what extent. But there's, it's not going to hurt, especially if it's, if you're taking the native soil from your area. I think there are questions as to whether or not you want to use mycorrhizal fungi that's, that's from, say, some commercial product and whether you want to introduce that into your soil. There are definitely questions around that. But I would recommend that if people want to do that, I mean, some of that's just going to naturally come in. I've also, in my food forest, inoculated with King Strafaria mushrooms that are edible. So that's also a, an option for people, too. Hmm, okay. In terms of, uh, have, you, have you explored like aquaculture? Does anyone that you work with do that? Do you, have you tried any other alternative methods, like helping people grow mushrooms themselves? Or do you stick to, you know, mostly outdoor stuff and a little bit of indoor yeah, so I there is a local company in town uh, called Montana Roots that does a lot with aqua, aquaponics. So again, using fish as the, you know, that's a, a way to close the loop in a hydroponic system is to bring it to, to aquaponics where you have that extra yield of fish and the fish are doing the, the fertility for or creating the fertility for you. So that's definitely a way to go. So they seem to be fairly successful at doing that. That's not my area of expertise or wheelhouse. I, I do focus more on greenhouse growing with soil and outdoor growing more than anything. But I do think that that's actually, you know, more than hydroponics, aquaponics might be better way to go because of the, the decreased inputs that you need. Yes, there's the fish food, but it seems like a better system than just straight hydroponics. Have you eaten crops? In an aquaponic system? I have. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things with aquaponics or hydroponic systems is the crops are more, have more water in them. So I do think that you lose some of the, the nutrient density and the taste from the hydroponics and aquaponics. But it's also, you know, it's better than nothing. You know, it's better than, you know, going having having your lettuce travel 1500 miles to get to your plate. And so I think that's, you know, that's also a consideration, right? Just in terms of, you know, you have different levels of what what we can do to strengthen our local food systems. And I'd much rather choose a hydroponically grown lettuce that's down the road from me than something that's traveled from California, for example. So hydroponically grown stuff will probably look bigger and juicier 
but it tends to have less taste in your experience and may not have the same level of nutrition. Yes. Yeah. Because nothing, you know, nothing beats the soil, you know, and all of the complexity of soil microorganisms that we can't see, but that are doing their, their work. Can anyone, I mean, create, or is there a, a microbiome, even a hydroponic system? Has anyone studied that? Good question. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about it. Um, I'd imagine that, you know, people, when they're, when they're brewing compost teas, you know, that's in water environment. So I don't know how people have been using and if they've been using compost teas in the context of hydroponic systems. That's a great question. What about a side-by-side comparison of, let's say, tomatoes grown hydroponically versus in soil, not just for taste, but for nutritional content? Has anyone embarked on that? I bet they have, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that study, but I do. I'm sure they have. I think well, it's that okay. I, I've asked a lot of people, by the way, that everyone's like, oh, well, it's complicated. Every soil is different. Or, or, but you right. can at least get like some order of magnitude. You know, if you see that the nutritional profile is similar, okay. If you see yeah. it's radically different, that tells you something else. But at least you can see directionally something. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm sure there, I mean, if somebody hasn't studied that, somebody should <laughs> definitely, but yeah, I don't know of any research offhand around that, but I do think that, that, you know, again, it's like we, we have all sorts of strategies at, at our disposal around what works in what contexts and what makes sense for each context. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I, teach in my classes, you know, there's all this concern as, you know, with the climate crisis and with the ecological crises that we're up against is, you know, how are we going to feed 9 billion people? And I always argue that we're going to feed 9 billion people by every community figuring out how they're going to feed themselves, you know, that local food systems need to figure out, we need to figure out place-based local systems where we make decisions based on the climate, the culture, the resources that are available locally and regionally to that area. I mean, that's how it was done in the past and that's how we can we should move forward. There is not going to be, in my opinion, a silver bullet solution to um, feeding the world. It is gonna be going back to the basics of what is every you know, climate, what works well in those climates, how much water do you get? Um, you know, how, what the soil is like, um, and what the culture is like, um, and what plants do well. And it's kind of going and extending from there. But definitely in urban environments, that's why, you know, where soil is limited and land is limited, some of these um, hydroponic and aquaponic systems make sense. What about um, water retention? Do you advise on that? And how important or critical is it for people? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think water, water is life. No, no blue, no green is is what they say, right, that, that we need water to grow food. And so any kind of, again, depends on your climate, right, you might get an overwhelming amount of water, so you might not need it as much. But especially in the West, we're always looking at water capture strategies. So whether that's conserving water um, by mulching our gardens, keeping them covered, um, or using drip systems, for example, or whether that's rainwater capture strategies around rainwater barrels, cisterns, infiltration basins, rain gardens, ponds, all of those swales, which are ditches on contour, 
all of those different strategies, depending on your site, depending on your slope, depending on your rainfall, are things that you want to consider. Water and soil are interconnected. And so we need both in order to grow food, to grow plants, to grow habitat. So it's really important to pay attention to it. Well, very good. Uh, Corrine, where can people find out more info about you? I mentioned it in the beginning, but if you wouldn't mind restating it. Yeah. So I have a website called that's brokengroundpermaculture.com. I'm also on Instagram at brokengroundmt. And I have a YouTube channel as well, which is Broken Ground. So yeah, people can check me out in all of those places. I run a resilient homestead program, which is an online program that's starting here actually in November, where I take people through, you know, all they need to know around permaculture and permaculture principles and also kind of planning their sites. So yeah, just check me out, visit me, contact me if you have any questions. Very good. Kareem, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.